0: we can modify and adjust training parameters to either emphasize or de-emphasize more of the fascial system or more of the musculoskeletal system. And that's very simple. If we look first at the amount of of constraint or external stability that's provided, the higher that the external stability is, the more we're going to have a muscular-based effort. The lower the external stability presence, the more fascially driven the movement is going to be.
1: That was Danny Foley, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here. Today's show is all about understanding the role of the fascial system in movement, and then how to arrange training based off more fascial or muscular concepts. And with that, for so long in human performance, we looked at things only under the spectrum of more of a muscular lens. So, what muscles are involved in movement? Are they fast twitch? Are they slow twitch? Uh, What does this muscle do or how does it act on the joints and so forth? And for a lot of training concepts, that still rings very true. On the other hand, we've moved towards some of the other mechanisms of movement. In the expansion and compression, we talk about fluids and pressure. And then within connective tissue, we have the fascia, the fascial system, this interconnected web that runs under our skin and is associated with elasticity and eccentric force and athletic motion. These lines run not only linearly or these fascia lines, but they also run in spirals which gets us to think about rotation and, and swinging clubs or bats or hockey sticks or whatever. Uh, it's a very athletic way of looking at movement. But when looking at any system, it's always important to look at the interconnected nature. So. How do we look at the fascial system in concert with the muscular system? And to help us with that conversation, we have today guest, Danny Foley. Danny is a performance coach, and he's also the co-founder of Rude Rock Strength and Conditioning. Prior to Rude Rock, Danny spent six years as the head strength and conditioning coach at Virginia High Performance. Danny is well known for his investigation into fascial training concepts, and he's also the creator of the educational library, The Fascia Chronicles. Danny is proficient at working with complex injuries and high-performance athletes in an interdisciplinary setting. On the show today, Danny will be taking us on an informative deep dive on the role of the fascia in movement and how to understand when relatively more muscle or relatively more fascial dynamics may be at play uh, when prescribing exercises, when looking at a training program. If you've ever wondered what fascial training really is, this is an awesome conversation and it was really fun to chat with Danny about this. It's always cool learning about these more recent developments in our understanding of the human body and this was a great conversation. Before we get to it, our two sponsors, Lost Empire Herbs and SimplyFaster.com. Lost Empire Herbs, absolutely love their products. I have sponsors for this show that I believe in, that I use. And Although herbalism was just kind of this weird thing to me for years, it wasn't until strongman, CEO of Lost Temperate Herbs, Logan Christopher, I had done a mental training episode podcast with him. He then told me about his herbalism company. I started using the herbs, the Phoenix formula was my first one. Absolutely loved it. I, I had no expectations going into it, but... After seeing the results of taking that on my energy and my strength and then getting into some other things like Shilajit, that's a big one that a lot of strength and conditioning or people in the strength community are familiar with, as well as other products. Just absolutely love what Lost Empire is doing. So to grab 15% off your Lost Empire Herbs order, head to lostempireherbs.com justfly or just use the code justfly fly at your checkout for Lost Empire Herbs. Second, we have simplyfaster.com. SimplyFaster.com has been with us since nearly the beginning of this podcast series. If you want a curated best-of list for sports tech that includes measuring speed or power outputs through sprinting such as the free lap timing system, force plates, bar speed monitoring, VO2 max uh, measurements, Simply Faster is absolutely your go-to. They also have training tools like blood flow restriction training or the K-Box. And then they have an awesome blog and... They also have helped Danny in releasing the Fascia Chronicles, which he will talk about as well towards the end of this show. So you can check out simplyfaster.com by heading to simplywithanifaster.com. Definitely take time to support these two companies. I'm really glad to have them as sponsors, and you can help this show by spending some time looking at what both of them are up to. So with that being said, let's get on to episode 335 with coach Danny Foley. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man.
0: Really appreciate you having me, Joel. Been a listener for a very long time, and and have definitely wanted to uh, get a chance to get on here with you. So I'm I'm excited to be here, man. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it'll be an interesting conversation too. I know that. So fascia, it's. I mean, really, it, it, if you look look at how pendulums swing, right? Like, all right, well, let's get away from just bodybuilding, powerlifting only looking at muscles, and then let's go all the way the other way, and go to fascia, right? Um, and I'm interested to dive into that because it's been something that's really been on my radar and interesting to me for a really long time. But let's start with this is what got you interested in fascia training or in fascia in the role of training in the first place?
0: Yeah, so I've I've shared this story a few times now, but this is really the origin for me. And and. Much of my professional development was was really rooted in in our time at VHP. I spent about six years at VHP, enjoyed every second of it, really loved everything about it. But the population that we worked with was high level military, mostly from special operations, Navy SEALs, Naval Special Warfare. And when you're working with this population, which was completely unbeknownst to me getting into it, you realize quickly that A lot of the conventional stuff just doesn't really apply or isn't conducive to that population or or personnel these are individuals that are very highly performing you know they're 99th percentile and above in, in so many of the physical metrics but they're they're also at the same time very damaged right all these guys and girls have you know at least three or four major injuries surgeries head trauma You know, we started working with a population on the veteran side that was showing a lot of metabolic dysfunctions and and impairments. And when you're responsible for training these individuals twice a day for an hour at a clip, two hours a day total, you really got to kind of get creative in a sense to figure out how we can load them in a pragmatic sense and, and do so with efficacy for what our outcome goals are. So, myself and the team over three or four years, you know we we really just continued to dig deeper and deeper on on how we can apply load to this population in a safe and effective manner and it you know it led us into this you know anatomy trains world and and looking into a lot of like the gary gray stuff and and some of the things that have been termed to be functional based training over the years and you know, we got to a point where we kind of just kicked the semantics to the side. It was like we had a job to do and we had to get an outcome and we had to produce results. So whatever we want to term this is fine, but what we were trying to do initially was not working. So once I had a couple of significant cases and a couple of athletes in particular, you know, again, another story that I've mentioned over the years, but, you know, I had an individual who was coming off of a, a very serious bout of thoracic cancer and it was, you know, really deeply enrooted down in the thoracic cavity. So. They had to go in and break the sternum, break all of his ribs on one side, tear the pec, lat, serratus, obliques, everything to get this thing out. So when he came to me, you know, he had very obvious, dramatic asymmetrical imbalances, both in terms of atrophy and in terms of function. And that was kind of the catalyst for me to really pursue this fascial-based approach. And my thinking at the time was, obviously, this is somebody who is not going to be A candidate for bilateral loading. This is not somebody who's going to be a candidate for high compound constrained stress. We're going to have to do things differently. So, really, all this is is just taking a step back. It's all still the same patterns. It's all still basically the same stuff, just applied in a little bit of a different way. And we had tremendous results. It was a a really successful six weeks, you know, and it it just again, it, it prompted me to try to think a little bit deeper on this and how it could be applied in more of a quote unquote conventional case. So, we got to a point really where we just latched on to these fascial-based principles and we put emphasis to the terminology because it made sense to us, but in more of a grand scheme and you know, speaking now to more of the contemporary high school strength and conditioning coach, college strength and conditioning coach, there's not nearly as many physical and bio, biomechanical limitations in those populations as there is with operators in the military world. So I think it's important that we start this conversation out by saying that context is going to drive the outcome in most situations or scenarios. In some cases, we don't need to deviate beyond bench, squat, clean, pull, sprint, hinge. But in some cases, we really do. And I think that what we're starting to see now with this growth of the strength and conditioning and human performance industry as a whole is that there's a lot of versatility to what we do, and I think that that's really cool. You know, if we continue to just box ourselves in and say that we only do X, Y, and Z, and that's all that needs to be done, I think we're just selling ourselves short, and we're being very short-sighted with it.
1: Danny, you were saying before the before we pushed record that, and I think this was kind of in our scope of questions, anyways. But in a conversation you would have with Mike Boyle, that like fascial training in some ways is kind of rebranded. Functional training. It's it's I, I my question is is how much in your opinion, what's the difference between those two if there is one, like fascial training and functional training? I think I will say too, as one more little add-on, is I think that people's uh what people consider functional training to be can also be a little different. You know, it could be split squats and we're doing functional training, it could be full functional patterns that we don't really load the body actually too heavily to my knowledge. You know what I'm saying? Like so uh, your thoughts on the two those two terms, functional and fascial. At what point do they differ in where we could actually look at the faster fascial system?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I really appreciated when, when Mike mentioned that to me because it got me thinking in a little bit of a different lens. I can only ever speak for myself and account for, for myself and what I've done and, and speak to what I've seen personally. But I do try to keep a good sense of, of how things are received in the industry and the market. Similar to yourself, I'd imagine I I feel a commitment and a responsibility to share valuable knowledge, insight, things that I feel can help, you know, develop this industry as a whole. So I try to be very careful about the game of semantics. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. If if it were entirely up to me and and there weren't a marketing aspect to our our field or our, our job, I would probably just say connective tissue system more so than I say the fascial system specifically. But there is the element of needing to generate buzz and needing to generate conversation about these things. And I I 100 percent definitively feel that these are conversations that we need to continue to have and get deeper on. But there's definitely going to be a crowd of people that try to capture this and take advantage of it. So I think that's really where this convergence of functional versus fascial kind of rears its ugly head, where, we're going to have a certain amount of people or or practitioners in the industry that are going to do everything they can to bastardize this term and try to profit on it. But it's very important to understand that the context of your environment is going to drive the definition of the term. So in other words, for me at VHP, fascial-based training is no different in any way or shape than just saying we're training, we're doing strength-based training today or mobility-based training today right? But when you have conversations with people that are in, again, like the conventional college sector or the conventional high school sector, fascial-based training has a different terminology or a different meaning because it deviates from what is more conventionally normal in those settings. But for us, that was normal. So I think it's important to recognize when people are just trying to capture this and they're posting a bunch of stuff, juggling on BOSU balls and doing toe curls with towels and then explain or selling that is, is fascial-based training. And that's not the case. Fascial-based training is a terminology that is contextual and it depends on the setting and the endeavor that you're pursuing.
1: Yeah. it, it is. To me, it is interesting. I, I know back almost 20 years ago now when I was in graduate school, I got really interested in just like tendons, tendon training. I, and the first book i read that kind of tipped me off to that was that db hammer book the greatest sports you know whatever greatest sports training book ever and in the book it was mentioned that and this is me reading this at like 22 years old that something along the lines if your tendons aren't strong enough or developed enough and you overdevelop muscles then you can't have the elastic potential and then a lot of my graduate school research classes uh projects uh, were around like connective tissue or more so tendons it was like katero kubo stuff so kind of like you said, I didn't even think of it on the level of fascial or training the fascial system until probably about 10 years ago when some of that idea started coming out. And I will say this is I, like you said, semantics, it is, I think if we look at the marketing side of it, I think it can definitely end up being, um, it could be lead to like confusion, confusion on some people's part. Like, what are we really training here? Or should I train this system or that system? But at the same time, I will say, the one thing that I like about at least the term fascial training is it highlights the the interconnectedness of the body. Like if you watch an animal like jumping or something like that, or even watching my kids who are four and six and obviously haven't lifted any weights or anything, just watching them run and jump around, where it's more of um like when people say they like the anatomy trains book, I think. I, I, read, I read the first two chapters of that book, and honestly, it was just a little, the minutia was a little overwhelming to me, and I, and I kind of started to realize, at least this was my theory, that when people said, oh, have you read Anatomy Trains? I, I'm like, okay, you mean you like the pictures in Anatomy Trains? Because that, right. that sends a powerful message. Like, our bodies are interconnected. There's these spiraling, there's straight and spiraling connective interconnected lines. And to me, I guess, it's more the message to me that if we look at these spiraling fascial lines, that there is an interconnected purpose, like a spiraling purpose, not just. Um, it's easy to say, all right, well, here's a squat, and it's just straight up and down, and oh, look how like regressive that is, and then oh, wait, now look at these spiraling lines of fashion. So, where I'm trying to go with all this, <laughs> before I just keep going off on fashion connective tissue, is and and I'll bring it back to this is where uh, maybe semantics aside. How might it pay to explore more into what does this system do? Like, what are the ramifications of these spiraling lines? What does it mean for training? And yeah, I mean, whether we call it in our facility, we call it fascial training or just training, how might we think differently because those spiraling lines exist?
0: Sure. So, a a couple of things there. The The first thing is, is anatomy trains is effectively the equivalent of of super training for <laughs> Bruchette, for Brash, right? Everybody loves to talk about it, reference it, mm-hmm. mention it. But I, I would say that the population of people who have actually gone through those textbooks and actually like took things away from them is much smaller than than is perceived. Mm-hmm. But you know, to kind of tie that into the direct question here, it it is it's very important to start by saying that the the two systems are inextricably linked. Right. And, and the metaphor and
1: muscle, you mean, like if we're just, yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. And, and so, you know, the, the metaphor, the analogy I've used to kind of describe this is like, it's like separating the aerobic and the anaerobic systems, right? If you really want to get down to the technical aspects of it, you can't, they're inextricably linked that are always just working in fluctuating capacities or in tandem based on whatever the environment of the body is and whatever the demands of the, the output are. So the muscle tissue and the fascial tissue are 100% inextricable, and you cannot necessarily separate them or isolate them in terms of training. Now, the caveat there is is that when we look at our training parameters, we can modify and adjust training parameters to either emphasize or de-emphasize more of the fascial system or more of the musculoskeletal system. And that's very simple. If we look first at the amount of of constraint or external stability that's provided, the higher that the external stability is, the more we're going to have a muscular-based effort. The lower the external stability presence, the more fascially driven the movement is going to be. The same thing goes with tempos, with oscillatory and perturbations, with different loading percentages and parameters. So again, if if we just substitute the term fascia out, and we compare muscle to ligament, we compare muscle to tendon, we compare muscle to skeleton. All systems are always working in coalescence to produce global outcomes. So my priority or or my point of view, so to speak, with this is just when do we need to continue to develop the musculoskeletal system as we all do and know well, and when do we need to deviate from that and not do different things but adjust the associating training parameters to emphasize more of the fascial side of things and then just act accordingly because it's not going to be ubiquitous. It's not everybody needs the same thing. It's not this type of person needs muscle training, that type of person needs fascial training. There's very much a nuance to this that is just unraveled as you're developing your relationship with your athletes.
1: Yeah. As you say that, I'll have probably a, I might go back, backtrack a little bit with a question I had for you, but What's interesting to me with that, and I agree with you. I do think it's something I may have said on this podcast or otherwise was, yeah, if we didn't have a muscular system, we would just fall and be basically a pile of goo on the ground, or or you know, we just collapse. Like you have to have, you have to have muscle, obviously. But it is interesting to watch, to think about it on the level of a dial, like like watching an animal, like a deer. Like I run in the woods and watch. There's deers jumping around. I'm just like blown away constantly. But even um like watching either a child run and play or watching track and field with younger athletes is really interesting. Like like 8, 10, 12-year-olds, they haven't started lifting yet. They haven't hit maturity or got more muscle yet. And there was a... um, I was thinking about reposting this, and maybe I'll put it in the show notes. It was like a 14-year-old from Australia ran a 10.65 or 10.6 in the 100. (laughs) That is moving. And I seriously doubt this person has done squats and deadlifts i don't know maybe a few but he doesn't really look like it but watching this guy run and seeing how his body accomplishes that task compared to say someone who's 10 years older with a lot more muscle mass there's a distinctive and interesting difference to it like his his feet are really externally rotated and you can just tell he is just leveraging that forefoot spring you call it fascial, I mean, he's using, if there is a dial on using more of the fascial system and connective tissue, he's definitely doing it. I mean, obviously, he's using muscle too. But what I was going to say is, you know, this is where I was going to go back to, is your story is really interesting with working with military folk. And I think the average uh, coach who works with, let's say, mostly high school, mostly college, the the wear and tear on, uh, of repetition and then traumatic injury in that military group is definitely makes for an interesting population that I think that you might not often see on the lower level uh, or the, the, the typical, maybe I'll just say more typical level of working with high schoolers or, or college age. But then also, I do find it an interesting trend. I, I've spent time I spent time with Gary Marinovich and the Marinovich training system, which is very much, I mean, if yeah. you look at the dial, they are very, fa- you could call it fascial, functional, extremely that. <laughs> you know, they, they, pri- they prioritize that stuff. you know A lot of you know less, less ground surfaces and uh, f- uh, physio balls and things like that. And so, it seems to me that uh, so often, it's almost like we follow this trend. We grow up and we're kids and we play, we move, and then we get into more of a high-performance funnel. Think of it like an hourglass where it's like, all right, we're going to do more weightlifting, more intensity, more stuff that I guess you could say is more muscular, compressive. And then people start getting hurt or they get dinged up from that and then they get to be an older athlete and they start the hourglass goes the other way <laughs> into more of that returning to your roots so to speak and so you know it's even uh just one other quick story that i think is interesting it was um it's funny like i'm like i'm like maybe i'm like gone for these stories but it was this was um 10 years ago as dara torres who at age 41 got a silver medal in the 50 free and swimming and it's swimming less ground it's not track sprinting but I just was fascinated that someone at that age could do that. And she did a lot of stuff at that point in her training that you would consider probably more, more fascial. She did a lot of the Bob Cooley, like loaded stretching type stuff. And when she talked about her weight training, she's like, I don't do the heavy weight training anymore. It's all functional and like TRX and that kind of thing. And I guess, again, swimming a little bit different, but still it's the 50, it's power. And so that's all that to be said, uh, to be said, I, I find it interesting with that. I just look at it like the hourglass and like the context, you know? And so I, I do you have any thoughts on that cuz I can't make that into a question but this is that's kind of my mind running with that that idea
0: Well I just I think that that's a, it's continued evidence that we've seen success over decades and decades and decades of human performance that has been acquired differently right I I mean you know I'm a football guy myself so I always point to like you know, the infamous stories of Bo Jackson, who never, mm-hmm. never touched a weight, only ran hills, only did push ups, mm-hmm. only you know, did body weight stuff. Muhammad Ali in the back half of his career moved to a remote cabin in the woods and the mountains and just ran and cut logs and stuff. And then we've That's seen awesome. guys <laughs> like, like Marinovich, right? Who, you know, was like this science project when he was going through college and getting to the NFL. And, you know, everything was like super measured and detailed. And, point is, is that we've seen success be captured in a million different ways. And there's a part of that that creates ambiguity and a little bit of frustration as a practitioner. But there's also a side of that that's very encouraging because it shows definitively, irrespective of where you sit on this sliding scale, that there's room for interpretation. And as the you know classic cliche goes, that a thousand roads lead to Rome or whatever, right? A thousand ways to skin a cat. So you know, I think it's on us to come to a collective, uniformed agreement that, hey, for right now, with the technology, the software, the resources that we have, we probably have about 80% of this model figured out, right? Like, it, I would say that for the most part, 80% of the stuff that we're all doing is reasonably the same thing. What we're trying to do right now is really capture that remaining 20% and try to figure out what it is that you know really optimizes the performance. Now, here's the interesting part. If we look at the data from 2010 to 2020, almost across all professional major sports, we're seeing records being broken over and over again, not only in play and in competition, but also in combine testing and in, and in data collection on that end as well. But at the same time, we're also seeing a continued linear rise in non-contact soft tissue injury rates. So that is really what that has become my muse. That's what Mm -hmm. keeps me up at night. And what I'm trying to really figure out is how can we have all of this advancement in technology, open source information sharing every single resource imaginable, and we still can't mitigate the onset of non-contact soft tissue injuries. That to me says that there is a void in our practice. I think we've done a great job up until this point, and I think that there there are so many practitioners far more than I can name here that have really changed the course of this industry. but I don't think that it's complete and what bothers me is when we have you know this crowd of people that are just very steadfast in that what we've done works and this is the best way to do it, and this is the way that we're you know that we're going to do everything moving forward and that's why I gravitate towards guys like Mike in particular because you know no offense to my population over fifty but You know, when I see people that are over 50 years old and have been doing this for 20, 30 years, and they're still in this state of changing their mind or having a different view or perspective on something, I immediately latch on to them because that shows me that they're still in a developmental phase. They're still trying to figure this thing out. And that's exactly the journey that I'm trying to set out on is like, I just want to continue to figure out what we've been missing, what hasn't really been shown to be definitively helpful or pragmatic. And what are we really going to be able to do in terms of perturbing the onset of injury and maximizing performance?
1: Yeah, so that'll lead me, Danny, to the next question and section of this, which is what is and isn't true about fascial training. And I want to start that out with a a question that I really, this is something that's been on my radar for a while. It was Sol Peterson who wrote, I think it might've been a Robert Schlepp like compilation on fascia or I don't remember. It was like a book on fascia and there was a lot of different people who wrote in it. And Sol Peterson, he's from New Zealand and has a martial arts background. I've actually talked with him about getting him on the show. And it was just a really interesting perspective on, I mean, you could call it function or fashion, you could call it connective tissue training. I don't think it, I don't know what they called it, but it was just talking about like martial artists, Shaolin monks, and if them getting just like hundreds and thousands of repetitions in on like, like punches and various movements, and they don't obviously don't have huge muscle mass, but. He was arguing that that repetition had a very strong impact on the connective tissue, the fascia, the bones, especially. I mean, you hit you know a hard bag or a rock, rocks or whatever they were hitting, so many times, and you're going to get hard you know, the the bone adaptation as well. And I don't think that is necessarily a whole lot different than even looking at let's just say oh, you're doing uh, some sort of I don't know high rep plyometric type training or high high repetition hopping those types of things to really. And I, I know that in some track and field conglomerates there, especially in like Europe, that that was really a marked part of the training was, I think, even up to like an hour of just this hopping all the time. And so, that and that was that population though. I don't know if that, and that's the thing though, is I don't know, you know, pe- maybe people who have higher arches in their feet might do better with that than someone who has a little bit of a flatter, more quick responsive type foot. I don't know. All that to say, <laughs> maybe lead off with that uh, on that like high rep. Uh, hopping plyo and then yeah go into what's (laughs) sorry i just like totally gave you a huge question then say what's true and not true but maybe start with that and then let's talk a little bit about what is what is and what isn't fascial like training that really engages that fascial dial
0: yeah so we can we can pick that apart and and well let me let me just start right there with a, a very comprehensive and unified definition of what fascia is because again a lot of people are still trying to have a a, just a clear understanding of that. So the fascial system is a global connective tissue that integrates and and penetrates virtually every element of our physiology and our biology. The fascial system is highly enriched in sensory bodies, proprioceptors, mechanoreceptors. It plays a significant role in, in communication, cellular communication, and basically just balancing compression and tension throughout the body. There's also a fluid dynamics component. So again, when we're talking about the fascial system, I think people get lost in this because it, it very objectively is wide-reaching. So if we take it from there, the fascial, what the fascial system is not, is it's not this newly identified or, or discovered system. You can trace this back in medical journals for literally centuries so we've been aware that that it exists that it's palpable it's tangible but the problem is is that for so many centuries and so many decades it was just perceived as this non functional packing filler tissue and we're just now really starting to kind of unravel a little bit more of the functionality of what the fascial system provides for the sake of movement so if we jump back to what you were mentioning about you know the the hops under fatigue and the the elastic based training I would again, and it sounds like a cop-out, but I would again just suggest that if we apply context to any circumstance or situation, do those things match up? So it's not whether or not the application or the endeavor is good, bad, right, or wrong. It's is that good, bad, right, or wrong for the person at, at hand and for what they're trying to achieve in training. So you know, I'll I'll take it and tie it into this. We I had a, a Twitter exchange with somebody a couple of weeks ago, talking about um, plyos under fatigue, right? Which has been one that I, I know you've spoken about quite a bit over the years. But to me, this is another one that's very simple because if we look at the demands of sport, you have to have plyometric action in the second half or in the fourth quarter of games. So why would we not experiment that in training as well? Because my very simple philosophy is. If it's experienced in sport we're going to sample it in training so i think that doing those like rudiment based plyos the extensive based plyos under a state of fatigue or for higher repetition higher longer duration is something that's novel for people if they are demanded to mm-hmm. do it in the second half of their sport right it, it's very simple to me but i do think that there's a good trade-off right with the demands of the the, the musculoskeletal system and the fascial system when we are fresh versus when we are under fatigue. And I don't know the answers to this, this is getting a little bit above my, my scope, but when we have fatigue in the central nervous system, how does that change the contributions from the tendinous properties to the fascial properties to the muscular properties? What does that exposure do to the bone structures when being under a state of fatigue? I think all of it is very fascinating and it's something that we should definitely continue to explore, but again, At the end of the day, if it's experienced in sport, we have to sample it in training. So I'm going to be inclined to that.
1: Oh, 100%. That's where I'm glad you mentioned that because we're probably departing a little bit away from. And I honestly, you know, what I feel like this show is kind of meant to depart away from just looking at, you know, fascia as a singular topic, because like you said, it's 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 all this is interconnected. And like I said, to me, it's more about the dial. It's more about that, that dial of pure muscle and then, I don't know, as pure of elasticity as you can get without, you know, and I will say even, I've even done, um, I've had athletes like track athletes do um, like pogos. And I'm like, all right, I want you to, the, the cue here is to use the least amount of muscle and effort possible to bounce. <laughs> like that to me is almost the, the epitome of, of that dial gone all the way towards, I guess, fascia connective tissue which, structure. Yeah,
0: which, which would mean having the least amount of joint action. Right, So the more that the joint moves, the more we're going to get muscular, musculotendinous contribution, whereas if we did POGOs with with effectively no knee bend or very minimal knee bend, that's going to become more of an elastically driven movement. So right on cue, it's a perfect example where it's like, should we do it this way or should we do it this way? My answer would unfortunately be either A, do both, or B, see what they need, right? If they need to be more efficient with less knee bend, do it that way. if not do it the other way That's
1: that's a that's a really good point there because i i think okay like look at the the shaolin monk doing all the punches right like how much bend is there when you deliver a punch like there's almost zero everything tenses up and so yeah with uh the plyometric movement or even with like the fashion the tensegrity of the like seeing tensegrity in the foot at chong ji was on this podcast a long time ago i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with him and his work and when he talked about the hyperarch and that foot shape, that was just a mind-blown moment for me that was really helpful and as I've developed. And with the, the hyperarch hop exercise that he had, which was like when all that stuff was coming out, that was kind of the, I know he has a lot more, but like that was a, a really big one. And when people would do that, it was kind of like a series of like 90 degree ankle angle in the ankle and then maybe not 90 in the knee, but when you did it, nothing really moved. Like you're not really supposed to have a lot of joint angle change. And I I guess that, that makes sense to me. It's like you put your joints in the angle. If you want to turn that dial to more of a fascial connective tissue stimulus, put your joints in the position that you're going to want them to be (laughs) experiencing. And then you just don't, don't move much. And by that virtue though, you can't, when joints don't move much, you do need a lot of reps because your power output isn't going to be very high, you know, like you just can't you, you, or you have to use gravity and like drop from, you know, height or whatever too. But anyways, I, that's just, I think that's an interesting point that you bring up there with the, how much range of motion, cause yeah, the more range of motion, the more muscles can stretch and then shorten and themselves contribute their muscle bellies contribute to the total yeah. motion.
0: And, and that's really it, man. I know it's a little bit of a nuanced discussion, but you know, it's things like that, that again, have prompted me to just study this a little bit deeper, study this a little bit deeper. Because if we, if we look at the mathematics of force application and expression, we can find an innumerable amount of cases where the math just does not add up. I mean, people that are six feet tall that can't back squat 185 pounds that can do a windmill dump. How does that occur? Right. And it's and some of this stuff is is loosely defined and some of it is still ambiguous. But for my sake, again, that just tells me, hey, what we've done has been great up until this point, but it's still incomplete because we still have things that we can't produce answers for. And that ties back right into the non-contact injuries, right? If, if non-contact soft tissue injuries were exclusively a force problem, we would train everybody like a power lifter and we would never see a non-contact injury. It's obviously something more than that. So is it the kinetic sequencing? Is it the perception action coupling? Is it the movement timing? Is it the sensory motor response? And, and all of these different variables that play into it. The irony or the, the paradox of it is, is that you can just find a route back to the fascial system from virtually any of these points that we're talking about. Now, I'm not here to suggest that that fascia is the, the underlying issue to all non-contact injuries, not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that I have found success anecdotally in that when we are dealing with injured athletes and we emphasize more of the fascial properties, that pain level tends to diminish. And so at least again, so far from what I've seen, we have not seen a lot of, of reproduced injuries, non-contact soft tissue injuries specifically.
1: Yeah, I I I agree that it is definitely multifactorial, but I and I also agree that I've I've seen the same thing. The further I got away from the squat bench deadlift kind of idea, even heck, even even like trap bar volume, not a a athlete friendlier lift. Just the less compressive stuff that I did, and the more I guess you yeah call it functional, fascial, you know, twisting, rotational, all that stuff. I noticed injury rates did get a lot better and by that I'm not saying don't do that. I think that's it is we like to shut the door on stuff so much and I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying maybe the dial needs to be turned more towards that functional fascial for a lot of athletes, maybe not every athlete you know football and rugby is different than men's tennis or women's tennis or you know a, a similar type sport. And so
0: age groups become a factor yeah. and and, and the, the availability of time, resources, equipment becomes the factor. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I haven't set foot in every single professional setting in the country, but if I were to just generalize this part of the discussion, I would just, I would say that we have probably been overzealous to developing muscular output and, and force output and maximizing the expression of force. And at the same time, we have overlooked or neglected the support systems for those force exposures and outputs. So in my mind, we need to maintain the stuff that's good, and then we need to replace the redundant stuff with things that are a little bit more pragmatic for developing the support systems, right? So taking that right in stride, in any given week with virtually any athlete that I'm working with, we're going to do a jerk, we're going to clean. We're going to do some kind of a heavy squat pattern and we're going to do some kind of a heavy pull pattern. I'm not a big bench press fan. I'd rather go with a jerk or an overhead. But case in point, across five days of the week, we're probably going to hit four or five of those main movements. Now, where I go in a different route than most conventional practitioners is that once we have checked those boxes, if I want high force in my first block, do the things that promote the, the best opportunity for creating high force in the second and the tertiary blocks that's where i start to deviate a little bit and i've used this this phrase quite a bit but it's not a matter of doing different things it's a matter of doing some things differently so it's it's doing rdl patterns it's doing single arm press patterns rows all these different things but you're just tweaking them or modifying them in slightly different ways that is something beyond do a dumbbell RDL for four weeks and add five pounds every time you come back to it. I think that that is just lower value collectively than some of the other things that we can put into this. If we tie that into the skill acquisition component to our work, I think this goes back to the point where we need to understand that if we want to be paid more, if we want to have more you know, uh, dignity in our reputation and be perceived better from other entities, then we have to go beyond what we've been doing. Because if we continue to be reductionist about our profession and say that you know we just work on squats and, and we help get people ready to sprint, it, it goes beyond that. And that's a good place to be in because, again, if we can provide more value that, ha- that has a wider spectrum to it, then the things like better pay, better work opportunities, those things start to fall in line as byproducts. So I think if we look at it as a simple, simple measurement of how much time do we have and how do we be as efficient as we can within that time, a lot of the redundant exor- exercises and accessory options that we've seen have been just overdrawn, in my opinion. And I think that we just need to look at it from a slightly different perspective and see how we can do a better job of coordinating muscular inputs and creating better kinetic sequencing so that we can be better athletes, not be better weightlifters.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah, it's ultimately what it's all about. It's, I think a lot of times too, we, we want to know what we're improving, you know, and maybe that's why part of the the fascial term has come around too is, okay, well, okay. So you're not, let's just say I'm a strength coach and I'm not going to go just full out on increasing squat bench dead and putting, and having a max test, you know, every so often to see we're improving. And in the sense of, uh, I'll say that in the sense of to say, oh well, I'm improving the fascial system, or you're improving balance. It's like, all right, well, show me, like how, like what's the number, right? And I think an easy one would be something like, like an RSI, reactive strength index, is going to be more on that fascial dial for sure. Um, but what's your what's your take on that? Like seeing improvement in those things. I mean, I guess to me, well, I'll just say one last thing too: is I, my gut says that it's is it is a little bit more qualitative than. The, the muscle seems to be more easily quantitative that's a very easy output to measure but and just like sport there's quality within sport there's quality within like a tennis stroke or or anything you're doing right uh, anyway that's just a thought but your take on that danny with how do you measure improvement in someone's fascial system maybe in the tissue too i don't know i know you've done some um had some experience with that as well
0: so it's wide reaching. I think you, you hit the nail on the head in saying that it's more qualitative than quantitative in nature. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of double back as to why that that is. But to give you a, a straightforward answer here, I do love RSI jumps. That's that's one that's very big for me. Um, and I've also used that where we've had um, the contact sensors and doing it in almost like a plyometric push up style, looking at, at contact time versus flight time um but beyond that time to stabilize is a measure that i'm really starting to kind of gravitate towards hmm. so looking at you know a forward displacement hop and and sticking on the third hop multi-directional transitioning from left to right going into bisected vectors or angles so looking at 30 degrees versus 15 45 90 and basically just looking at it as a a one-to-one comparison so left versus left pre to post and then looking at it as a right to left comparison in that section or in that segment right so left to right pre versus left to right post i think time to stabilize is a really good measure for the fascial component because i go back to that that biological communicator right there's a the the fascial tissue is highly enriched in sensory bodies and it plays a big part in kind of communicating the cellular environment so if we look at stabilization as being the ability to come to an abrupt stop and create tension or create, uh, you know, inter, inter-, inter- interconnected, uh contraction on a localized area. That is something that tells me quite a bit about that abil- the ability of the fascial system to communicate and kind of like correspond to what we're trying to get to with stability. In addition to that, I think that anything that's looking at left to right assessments, um, you know, I'm I'm very lucky right now to have a lot of technology in the the uh, facility I'm working at. But you know, we look at like a Kaiser chop from the left, Kaiser chop from the right, um, looking at a lateral bound displacement. So single effort stab on the right, jump to the left. How much can we cover with a minimal load? So anything that's going to be asymmetrical in nature is going to be more privy to the fascial system because of the orientation of these fascial structures. As they mostly run in this kind of helical or spiral nature around the body
1: that's cool. I like the that time to stabilization I think I, i've never actually timed it it 's always just been visual for me, but i my gut would say that that would correlate very highly with non contact injury rates, especially maybe too, like if someone didn't like if someone dropped off a box, got bumped by a physio ball, and now right. it 's time to stabilize like I feel like that would go just so. So close with injury rates, even, and that's I, I've been fortunate myself to, you know, as an N of one to have not been hurt through non-contact injury in sport. And I, I think that one of my body's abilities that I know is the ability to to do that, and even to the point where, um, and even down to almost the micro level. Like I remember I was um, uh, I was um, paddleboard paddleboard surfing. Yeah, that's what I was trying to like think of it. It's been so long since I did. I was paddleboard surfing in Lake Michigan uh, with my brother. Like six years ago. And I remember I bailed out in a place I thought the water was way deeper than it was. I thought it was like three, four feet deep and it was like one foot deep. <laughs> and so yeah. I got, you know, my knee, I just remember my knee just twisting so fast. But it's almost like my body like jumped in and saved me, you know, <laughs> like just that all that instinctive, all the plyos I've done, all the drops, all the depth jumps, all the, you know, all that stuff. Like I developed that system well enough that that was just ready. It almost no matter what was coming up, it had a stabilization pattern. And I still messed myself. I think my ankle was still messed up after that. I mean, it, was bad. it would have been I, – I could feel how much force was going through and how easily something could have snapped though. And you know, I, I do think about even watching like my kids when they're climbing a tree and they jump down. My daughter at age five could land – for dropping probably a two foot drop, uh, and land maybe maybe not maybe like eighteen inches at least. It was substantial and land with almost entirely straight legs with almost zero bend. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's the, that's what you're talking about. That's that that fascial system. And even doing with the whole time to stabilization too. It's almost my, my favorite. I guess you call it non official. It's in the sense that I don't I don't have a time tag to it or like a a sway or a biomechanical marker. But Jay Schrader's altitude drop leg exercise. That it's like a depth drop basically, but you start on one leg with on a box, standing on one leg, have a knee in the air, and then you hop off, bring the knees together. Like you're at the top of a tuck jump and then you, everything decelerates down and a good athlete can hit the ground with pretty straight legs and just stay there like a statue. And I find that the further you get away from that, I just, I just see that being less and less and less of a quality of your ability to really fully utilize that. Um, that potential. So that's my unofficial, <laughs> I guess, screen is related to what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, but that's all right in line because, you know, the, and, and let me be very clear like when I get, you know, heavily into the, the fascial communities, right? There's a lot of stuff that gets a little bit weird on that side too. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, I had the, the distinct pleasure of, of going out to Boulder, Colorado last January um, for a week long dissection course with Tom Myers and Todd Garcia and uh tom is as cool and as weird as advertised um it was awesome to be able to spend some time with him but you know is is intelligent and as bright as he is you can see and hear when he starts to kind of get you know a little bit too enveloped in his own circle and and everything becomes fascia (laughs) oh well the tendon is fascia when we break and i'm like ah come on let's pump the brakes a little bit right but importantly fascial tissue, at least as we understand it to this point, does not really have much contribution in terms of creating contractile forces. Robert Schleich put a study out a couple of years mm-hmm. ago that kind of hints at some very minute contractility uh, for the fascial tissue, but it, 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 importantly, it is more so involved in forced dispersion and in eccentric loading, right? So eccentric stretching is what kind of creates the, the activation, so to speak, of the tensioning of fascia that then plays a, a predominant role in the elastic recoil mechanics, mm-hmm. right? So this is like stretch shortening cycle plus one step. Um, you know, we're looking at beyond just the tendinous mechanics of elasticity here. The fascial tissue has essentially the same thing. So when you were describing your daughter jumping out of the tree and landing stiff-legged and not shattering her kneecaps, I think a big part of that is because it's a highly uh, you know, a tuned fascial system that is able to d- disperse those forces as efficiently and as rapidly as possible. That is something that I, I think would be very hard to argue against being involved in injury mechanisms.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. And I, I like you said, with the, the putting a time a number on it, I think that this type of thing will become, the more easily it is to put a number on it, I think that Will help to increase the popularity of it as well and the perceived relevance because it's like now we have something we can improve. You know, I have these athletes. I think that's the thing too. Is I'm a, if I'm a performance coach and I'm trying to say, all right, well, what did we accomplish? Like, okay, we you lifted more, that's awesome. But and you you jumped higher and you, but to say, hey, you also well, your RSI got better. You were able to be bumped off of this box or do this drop exercise and your time to stabilization was better. Like that's I just think that's a cool. To have something on the very end of that dial, you know, that fascial uh, type dial, I think is, I just think is really helpful. So um, that's, um, you know.
0: I w- yeah. And I still test, you know, VBT for for hex bar deadlifts. I still test, you know, 25 meter sled pushes. I'll still yeah. do aerobic capacity stuff. So again, this is just a component of a bigger puzzle that we're all trying to work through. And these are things that I've just found to be reasonably successful.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay. So, you you had mentioned a little bit about, um, I think it was like Robert Schlepp and then some of the more, to me, I'm curious about some of the other things fascia does. So, you had mentioned it doesn't, by itself, doesn't have any or m- almost zero you know, propulsive ability. You have to load it uh, for it to be that part of movement. But I'm curious, you, you mentioned like the proprioceptive, like the sensory ability of fascia. And I, I've heard this too. And I think people who have studied fascia are pretty familiar with the fact that fascia is like a connective network. It can even store emotions like uh, massage therapists will be working on people and get emotions to come up. And that's been said to be part of that. So I'm curious about just and quickly, too, because I think we still have some other maybe more practical things to get to towards the back end of the show, but like other functions of, of the fascial system that we might not typically consider.
0: So, I, I mean, I think I, it really isn't too drawn out, man, because I think that the sensory motor function or the proprioceptive aspect of fascial tissue is probably the most important mm. part of it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the body is just a, a an amalgamation of signals and communication and fluctuation and, and trade-off, right? Everything is always working in, in tandem or in harmony. And with the fascial system, this is just the network or the, the, the predominant tissue that is responsible for detecting those sensory inputs and then transmitting those to the brain for function or for action. So the, the phrase that I've used for this is our ability to detect promotes our opportunity to respond. So if we have a dampened sensory system where we aren't able to, to register or detect our external environment, force vectors, amplitudes, all these different things, it's then going to be a delayed process to the brain to then produce the outcome that we need. And if we, talk, if we go back to our point on injuries, these are happening in hundreds and milliseconds, right? hundreds of a second in milliseconds. And the, the time response is something that is almost imperceptible to us. But in nature, it's important to understand this mechanism, and it's important to build this into our training capacity. Because again, at the end of the day, it's not just amount; it's not just the amount of force that you can produce or tolerate, but it's the amount of time that you can do so within, right? And I think that that's another one that if we go back to picking on our, our big movements and our bench squat dead, et cetera, et cetera, those there's no time component to these, and that's why personally, I I love you know adding jerks and cleans into my move, into my movement panel because if for nothing else, there is a demand for time and coordination. Mm-hmm. But that's not present with our functional primary uh, power lifts. So I think that those are great for force application. And then I think there are other things that are better for the time components. And the the way that we really dial in on the proprioceptive and the sensory aspect of the fascial stuff is really just changing our pursuit from maximal force to changing to uh, our pursuit for variability. And one thing that i really try to focus on especially with the accessory block is improve the athlete's ability to tolerate variability i think it's tremendously reductionist to take a sport like football and say it's it's predominantly a sagittal playing sport that's a lactic and works and it, dude it is so wide reaching and there's so many different elements and variables that are occurring and it change based on the level and the type of place uh type of offense or defense that you run and the, then the different positions and all the different elements from the the field to the weather. If we continue to just try to put these things in a box, we're going to miss so many things. So I think we need to just continue to enrich ourselves and really finding these nuanced and micro details, which there are tons of people out there that are doing this. Don't get me wrong. Um, But if we see the, the, the variability of sport as being a priority for training factors, I think it dramatically changes how we go about some things.
1: Yeah. With the variability of sport too. So let me uh, ask you this. I think this is an interesting concept is a lot of people who like in the Marinovich training system, I think a lot of their success stories, I'm sure they have, uh, I think uh, like the Gavin uh, McMillan, he's been on the show too. They have a very similar process uh, with how they train, but they, both of those systems have like the balance discs and the balancing, the balancing elements. And I know kind of, like I said, with the hourglass, I think a lot of athletes who kind of went through they got too compressed had injuries pop up and then they go and they already had probably an adequate like power output like if your power output is solid enough for your sport then to go and just go full like fascial connective dial you're probably going to do and and not that they don't do like kaiser jumpers or they don't have kaiser super cats like those kind of machines they have their way of getting the power output as well um so it just seems like based off your need your power need, you can plug in X amount of, of that type of work as you, as you need to, uh, I was so, and, and you not mentioned that, like you still have those things in your program where I want to go now though, is as I mentioned with like the, uh, Marinovich and McMillan and Edith Hoyce as well. Uh, who have all been on this show, is the balance training. And David Weck, too, BOSU Bosu ball. Uh, because I just think, uh, I know 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and it's probably still thought that way a lot, is uh, like, oh, here comes the balance board, the BOSU ball. The, and we don't think about that as as real training. We just think of it as a novelty act. It's something that's interesting. And athletes are bored. And they want something interesting to do or whatnot. And I know for me, I've uh, especially within the scope of some of the, the tools, the balance tools that Marinovich and... Um, like the, the PVC pipes, for example, or the discs, I, uh, the hard point stuff, man, I, I love that stuff. Um, and I just curious your take on the role of balance. How do you train it? Uh, how do you, is there any sort of assessment or is there any sort of context you give when you put that type of work in, uh, just thoughts on proper reception, fashion, balance type work?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that people often confuse balance and stability um you know i think if we if we add the time component to it it becomes more of a question surrounding balance whereas if we just look at the ability to hold a position i don't think that that's necessarily as much balance as it is stability training so making sure that we're differentiating between those two if i have somebody who can't just single leg stand on a hard surface without any kind of input or element it's not a balance problem it's a stability problem it's a joint capsule hip problem or it's a foot problem right um, once we get beyond that part of it, I think that balance is good for conscientiousness. It, it, if nothing else, it's making the athlete more cognizant or aware of what their body is doing or trying to do in space. I think there's value to that. Um, beyond that, I think that it is, like you said, just a novel application for pre or post training. And I think that with I don't get I don't get into anything on a BOSU ball. It, that That to me just doesn't really have a lot of merit um no i don't really have a particular reason it's just not not really for me but i will throw out like the airx pads um and i will just do variable surface training so Mm. you know do something on the on the platform for a set and then go over to the turf do it on the turf for a set you know then we'll start getting into eyes closed eyes open memory recall basic cognition so for my, for my sake or my approach, I think it's really just kind of going more towards the interoception side and going more towards the kinesthesia side, where I want to prompt conscientiousness and I want to have the athlete be more focused on what their body's doing and how they can create strategies or, or adjustments that will accommodate what they're trying to do. So this is something that's very minuscule and almost you know any person I'm going to work with, barring anybody who has you know, clinical disease or, or any kind of like surgical injury or history. Um, but it is something that we'll throw in from time to time. I do like, you know, switching and and displacement jumps with eyes open, eyes closed and doing so in kind of a a randomized pattern. So, mm. you know, again, now we're kind of back to the time to stabilize thing, which I think is if we're going to roll with our semantics theme, you know, functional balance, right? Like adding the time and the, the displacement component to it. Uh, but yeah, outside of that, I think it's, you know, something that's really going to be, um, a, a low investment, all, all things considered.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, there is some similarities to that, like that switching drill or the boom, the boom, boom drill. I think a lot of people are familiar under that name and time to stabilize. Like you switch it's a, the time to stabilize component there is pretty substantial. And it's funny to think about doing that blindfolded. It'd be safer than doing an altitude drop legs blindfolded. That, that could be a a really interesting, um, maybe, definitely something I would not do with my clients, but maybe I'll try that, start with a six-inch box, <laughs> and we'll kind of see. Yeah, but, go
0: up six inches at a time, see how it goes. <laughs> well, you know, but on the note of balance real quick, though, it, something that has, has really uh, captured my attention has been what Cal has been doing, Cal Dietz has been doing, um, you know, with his infinity loops and with his mm-hmm. vestibular stuff. See, I think that's something that is, again, it, it feeds right into this conversation about you know, quote unquote, things that have been a little bit overlooked in in high performance training. You know, Cal has a brilliant video where he uses the owl, keeping his head centered and, and being able to disassociate from the body, and then you know, taking that into the infinity loops while guy, guys or girls are juggling around their waist, doing simple math recall. Those are the types of things that I think are are definitely more valuable than we've given credence to. And I think on a on a on a uh, research side. Need to be studied a little bit more directly because we can easily just sit back and look at it and say, "Oh, well, that's gimmicky." You know, we don't need to, but do we know? Right? Have we looked into that a little bit more? And I think that there's some things to unravel there.
1: Yeah, I like yeah the the owl example. Uh, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, I like the idea of the an- the answers being found in nature in the sense of I think that a lot of times, and and that's not to say I think there's a lot of times a lot of gaps that need to be plugged in for what people are missing because like the Bo Jacksons of the world, there's. There's not a lot of people who could not like lift weights at all (laughs) and be be at his level. You know, a lot of people need a lot more intermediary steps to get there. But one of the things that I think, I I always am thinking about things that a human being would do in nature that could fill a gap. And one of the things that uh, I think that plugs a lot of those or uh, checks a lot of those boxes Is I I, I like doing um, minimal shoe creek running where I just run. I put a had an Instagram video on this and where you just have minimal shoes and you run on rocks in a creek. And to me, I I mean, and I like doing uh, like the like the balance discs that uh, like sports science lab Marinovich balance discs. I like those a lot because there is a, a like a time to stabilization on the micro level. Like if you if you shift and your foot hits a different spot, you have a certain amount of time for your foot to stabilize in that spot. And if it doesn't, and it's a hard point disc too. I think that's why I like like Zig Ziglar, uh, the foot, the foot, uh, the biomechanist, not the motivational speaker, when he was on a long time ago, talked about hard point balance being so, because the feedback comes back so fast versus I think uh, the softer the things get, it you feel it more in the hip or it's slower on the local level. But all that to say is running in a creek bed Like my, and and with all the plyo stuff too, I mean, it's, I think a a well-functioning athlete can go play their sport and get the vast majority of what they need from a proprioceptive plyometric whatnot perspective. Um, But the more, I do think that the more you play in nature, that is even more like, that's almost your roots for that in so many ways. And back to my, my Creek, I want to tell my Creek story is like, I, the, what, how my feet and lower legs feel. Running in a creek bed for like 15 minutes, where I'm basically just jumping rock to rock, and not even like big jumps. I'm talking like most are just in the scope of a normal running stride, and I just have to choose in the air where I'm going to step next. The rocks are always angled in some way, shape or form. they're all they're different um they're different sizes too. My foot usually doesn't often doesn't fit completely on the rock. And sometimes I'll do bigger jumps, sometimes smaller, but it's just pure variability. And then with the minimal shoes, it's a lot of sensation. And w- the, the output I'm feeling in terms of just intrinsic foot muscle activation, lower leg activation, co-contraction, um, and I think my ability to feel those things has heightened over the years. It's also heightened, I think, too, a little bit as a result. You said like the balance and awareness, doing a lot of the hard point balance stuff and awareness of what's going on. But I just have this feeling like i know that my feet and lower legs are getting the same kind of stimulation doing that as when i was i guess you could say i was at my facial peak like like in my teens early 20s playing basketball how easily i popped up off the ground is the same feeling i'm getting doing that highly variable um those different surfaces especially the ones where it's like ball of the foot hit you have to kind of balance it and then make the next jump and so for me that's been that has been just a massive um, element of my training. It's just hard to do that with athletes because it's like, hey, let's find the local creek. And uh, you know, if right. it was just outside your gym, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I mean, you could set up for it, but it's hard. You'd have to get like a bunch of different rocks and <laughs> right. yeah, you could do it. It's oh. just a little different.
0: But in principle, though, that's beautiful. And that's exactly, that's a perfect description of, of really a lot of things that I believe in. But in this conversation that we're discussing now, you know, the the variability or the absence of predictive input is extremely important yes. because once again, you can you can put anything on paper and say that that a football play is going to be predictive or a basketball. But it isn't in any way, say, shape or form. It isn't. And in addition to that, I'm a huge proponent of the barefoot applications. And, you know, I, I'm not a runner. I don't try to speak to that crowd. So in terms of shoot versus unshoot running. You know that's a simple one for me. Don't just go out and start running barefoot. You have to progress into that, otherwise you will run into problems. Um, but in the training sense, train barefoot when you can, when it's prudent, when it's when it's conducive to your environment and your day. But that that is very simply described for me as if you have excuse me um, if you have a change in foot position, you have a change in kinematic sequencing up the leg. So when we have different elements of sport, where we have different angulation of the foot, we have different bending and positions of the trunk, the connections above and below the knee joint are going to be different. So I think that this is where we want to pursue that element of variability because it's going to give the body a better opportunity to be stable and be able to create tension with different inputs and in different positions. Hugely important to me.
1: Yeah, that... um that Creek run thing. I, I, part of the inspiration for me to go do that was when I was at Rafe Kelly's return to the source retreat, which that retreat too was a big, the, just kind of what I picked up from that. Uh, yeah. I guess you call it fascial knowledge was I spent that week. Obviously I wasn't like lifting weights at the retreat, just, you know, just playing in nature in mostly minimal shoes. And again, I don't, I'm not like all against running in, Regular shoes, I think, when it's an artificial surface, you actually like a concrete or even a wood basketball floor, like that type of thing, you need an artificial cushioning to help you deal with the artificial surface. But being out in nature, and I, I guess rocks, you know, are definitely hard, but it's not like it's like a flat rock surface. These are all like different little rocks with their own little nuances, and you're not running. You can't actually go at full speed because of just the nature of how it all is with the rock, with the if you're running rocks or logs or whatever it is. Anyways, all this to say is after that week at the retreat, I, I remember coming back to the gym and testing my vertical jump again. And I had never felt, I shouldn't say never, but I hadn't felt the output of the way my lower legs and feet were were just boosting me off the ground as I had after that retreat. And I just don't know how many ways you can create that stimulus. I'm sure you can. And the, you know, the, as, as we move forward, I think we'll find more ways more and more ways to do so. And I know that retreat has inspired me to consider more and more ways to do so. But just like being in nature, being in community, having intention and running and jumping with all this variability, some little jumps, some far jumps, all sorts of stuff. Like it was like, that was a supercharger for my feet and lower legs. And Rafe, when he was on the podcast a long time ago, I talked about he had, he was jumping higher at age like 37 or something like that when he was just doing a bunch of that parkour stuff in the woods. Then he was actually formally training for vertical in his early like early twenties or something like that, and I could see that for sure from that lower leg, just foot uh, dynamic development in nature standpoint. I mean, it's it's really incredible. I think whoever's listening, like, it's not like it's necessarily easy. Yeah, just go to your local forest and just start you know running around and find stuff to jump off of. But to me, that just spoke so much to just the power of of a human being in nature (laughs) and and stuff that we have to look at what's happening in nature to then be like, all right, well, how can I recreate this in this box? We call a gym with, you know, all these more flat kind of surfaces and things.
0: And sometimes it'll hit and sometimes it won't. Sometimes there's prudence to it and sometimes there isn't, but that's exactly this. It comes back to that same central point of like, I look at anecdotes and evidence like that, you know, guy who's 37 decides to start just jumping around in the woods after doing X amount of years of purely trying to train for his vertical, and he gets more results from from being in the woods versus on the platform. Like you said, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to go out and run in the woods to improve their vertical, but it tells us something.
1: Yeah. We can also something from that. Yeah. They,
0: you know, and I want to figure out what those elements are and how we can recreate those and put those in motion in a safe and effective manner in a trading setting. And that's really all it comes down to. But with the foot specifically, man, you know, talking about that sensory motor function, the, the bottom surface of the foot is highly, highly enriched in, in a lot of these free nerve endings and sensory bodies, you know, because from an evolutionary standpoint, that was how we detected the external environment around us. So when we have the presence of shoes constantly, it, de- it dampens or desensitizes that neural input, that neural stimulus, and, and basically the proprioceptive acuity. Because the cushioning of the shoe is 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 taking all of that on, there's also the the trade off of foot compliance when you have you know thick cushioned shoes that foot compliance isn't really functioning how it should because most of the contours are coming from the cushioning of the shoe so this is where when I talk about barefoot training people it's really weird how how resistant people are to this, but um you know I'm not talking about going and running you know. 10 hundred meter sprints barefoot i'm talking about doing the same type of accessories you would normally do just doing them without your shoe because we get the sensory input we get the compliance aspect we get the the full extension or flexion of the big toe which then gives us the full tensioning of the medial arch which then gives us better continuity at the ankle which then you know and up and up and up the chain we go so it's a very low-hanging fruit in my mind that can be worked in very simply and you don't have to change anything else in your training environment yeah, I,
1: I'm glad you said that too. as I don't, yeah, just because I think nature parkour can be an excellent way to train jumping ability. It doesn't mean that we have to abandon, you know, squ- uh, tried and true, th- true tried and true things like squats for uh, developing jumping power. But yeah, it's it's kind of finding uh, situations and then novelty too, like you said. And I like how you mentioned this, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And you know, the more we go through this conversation, Danny, the more I feel like it's it's not just like the fascial system. This is like the life system. This is everything. And you, you mentioned reacting. You're not anticipating, but you're reacting. And one of the, I mean, this has been on my radar for a while. Uh, Tommy John has mentioned this as the idea of training like a child. And you think about a child learning to walk. Like it's just this obsessive, like they don't just try like three times and be like, ah, it's not for me. You know. They, and uh, yeah. Brady, Brady Volmering, who's been on the show, talks about that a lot. And I've been thinking about it in the sense of, and I think in general we tend to underestimate the role of the mind on performance. And I think one of the areas we do that is we so often we overprogram everything, we overcoach. Okay. We if someone does a squat, here's this, this, this. And yeah, if the heavy weights on your back, I get it. But like we're so just ready to hit any exercise with all these coaching cues. But something like. You can't coach like running in a creek, like not technically, at least you could say, hey, don't like jump on the ice rock or something, you know, Um, but you're not going to coach how a person's like landing in that position situation. And even for me, like I can't, I don't really know how that rock's going to feel like exactly until my foot hits it. And the beauty of it too, is sometimes the rocks slip. And then, and Adarian Barr has talked about that, like, like sometimes people sprint faster when they inadvertently stumble and there's like a reaction they have to like kind of jet out of. And I think Austin Yoakam's talked about that too, like kind of getting bumped in the context of sprinting and then you hit the ground and it's a reaction stimulus. And I've been doing uh, even like sprint float, sprint on a tuned level into a fly 10 stuff where it's just putting you into a state of reacting more than, well, okay, let's start the motor program. All right. I'm going to sprint. I'm going to do this to my arms. I'm going to do this about, you know what I'm saying? Like, and that is taking this back to me. That's the epitome an epitome, a strong component of training like a child, because a child doesn't have those, okay, I'm doing this exercise, here's my mental checklist. And and I have found though that and and I think many of us think back to like when was the best time for you in training, your best training session, your best athletic feat. And so often it's it's not when we were micromanaging and hyperanalyzing everything, or even if we were in a training program that was doing a lot of that stuff, when we actually got out and competed we just, we just did it. We just reacted to the gun and the competition. And I do think there's something in, in even track about remembering your race plan, but at the end of the day, it's true athleticism comes out of just uh, like that stillness and that reaction more than it is. I'm going to formulate all this ahead of time, you know, and there's a lot to that
0: time, time and place and context, right. And all the people that you're mentioning, and I'm a big fan of, I, I, have, my guy Austin is, is really, uh, Kind of coming into his own over the last year or mm-hmm, two here yeah. but um to that to that end you know it goes back to to what i was mentioning about you know changing the pursuit from from progressive overload to this pursuit of variability and i think that you know and i don't want to get into the com- conversation of you know how strong is strong enough because people have butchered that one a million ways over but effectively if you have somebody who's 12, 14, 16 years old that that is just being introduced to sport, yeah, we probably have mostly a controlled environment that's mostly predictive and it's mostly simple. By the time we get to the back end, right, and we keep talking about coming back around to training like a child, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Because if I have somebody who's, you know, in their 30s, who's had multiple injuries, who's had head trauma and and, you know, compounding injuries over the last eight years, then I need to figure out how to apply stress and load that isn't going to effectively double down on their pain, double down on their compensatory patterns and their restrictive movements. I need to figure out how to open it back up. So all we're doing is we're just playing with different inputs. We're using the same physical equations, but we're just doing it in a little bit of a different way. And I think that that's really where people have a a hard stop with with the fascia stuff is, you know, because it just looks abstract to them, it's something that is perceived as off-putting, but I get way more people who, you know, comment about, well, that's right or wrong, as opposed to, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because normally when I get that opportunity to provide context to it, their, re- their response reaction is a little bit different, right? Um, and again, the easy one being all the military crowd and the, you know, the, the operators and everything like that, but it applies beyond that as well. So I think what we're really getting to here is this, we have some nebulous of all these different things that are candidates for sports performance training or high performance training. And based on our, our perspective, our bias, or our, our general upbringing in this field, we tend to latch on to certain things that make more or less sense to us. And really what I'm trying to do is just kind of help bridge these worlds together from my understanding of it and seeing really what we have just been overlooking or not really getting much utilization out of that we can or should be
1: yeah i um you know i was gonna say too with uh this was just one last thought i had and then i'll, I'll ask you the last question here but it was uh marvin marinovich had written and he was part of a it was like a journal a journalist was doing a report on him and he was quoted as saying when you do the like the like the balance disc type work like the hard point discs your body your body gets to choose and i think that some of that stuff puts you a little bit more in the present moment like to me, present moment trading, I apologize if I've kind of gone off track here, but I kind of got my mind going on this is that there's also like a state of wonder. Like it's like, it's not just novelty for novelty's sake. It's like training that kind of puts you in a little bit of that state of wonder. And I do think that getting on like having something that is like highly novel and stimulating, like a Creek run, or even maybe being on a balanced disc for a period of time can have that to it. And I just think when we get sometimes when we get too programmed up, like there's too many cues, too many things to think of. Uh, I mean, to my knowledge, even too, I think Jay Strader's assistant with the ISOs, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I don't think he coached those very much. I think a lot of that was up to the self-learning process of the athlete. And maybe the wonder came when you had fatigue and you had to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, anyway, sorry. My mind was just rambling there. I, I do want to ask you, I do want to close this out, Danny, by just saying, okay, uh, you've mentioned a lot of this. Uh, I actually would love it if you could kind of wrap up. Uh, you, you mentioned like uh, variability, proprioception. Could you kind of wrap up tr- uh, what defines training that is uh, more to that fascial dial? So yeah. if I turn the dial all the way to fascial or most of the way to fascial in training, what to you defines that? Uh, like what would those components look like from a nuts and bolts perspective or a general?
0: Sure. So I'll, I'll reiterate at the start here by saying that optimizing the fascial system or, or taking this fascial-based approach does not require you to do anything different. It requires you to just do some things in a little bit of a different way, right? And that's going to mostly speak to those training parameters. But to give you the direct answer here, we want to have mostly global omnidirectional-based movements, most of which are going to be done unilaterally or contralaterally. So we're just de-emphasizing or breaking away from that compound bilateral symmetrical loading. Um, we want to use a wide range of intensities and really this scales all the way from sub body weight to over maximal but if i want if i want to kind of hone in on quote unquote the fascial zone i tend to find the most success in that 40 to 80 percent range and doing so with high intent high volition utilizing uh a good bit of like oscillatory perturbative type of applications is, is definitely conducive for the fascial system uh we talk quite a bit about it but being barefoot when you can be is something that I think is pragmatic for fascia. Utilizing proximal to distal-based principles or just kind of seeing everything as being from the trunk or the epicenter outward. And then finally, just looking at it as trying to improve your ability to tolerate variability. I want to have a training environment or a training setting that is directly trying to challenge that end range of giving the athlete a loose parameter and a loose situation that they have control and autonomy over, and we're going to drive that variability component pretty hard. So train in multiple directions, use a wide range of loads, proximal to distal principles, get out of your shoes when you can, and then pursue variants in addition to or in conjunction to the conventional force applications.
1: Awesome. Such a great way to close it out. I know now that you've said that, I'm like, all right, now here's a, I have all these other questions to ask you, but we'll, uh, <laughs> let's, let's leave it there. And then, but before we get going, is there anything, uh, where can people connect with you? Is, I think you have a series on Simply Faster that you have coming out um, or have out already at this point. Uh, tell me a little bit about where people can find you and anything you want anyone to know about.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube channel, uh, my, my handles at Dan mode, uh, rude rock. Um, I'm pretty sure across all those Our YouTube channel is the rude rock strength channel. Um, I am extremely proud and happy with how the, the product, the fascia Chronicles came out. I, I simply cannot thank simply faster enough for all that they've done for me and Nicole over the years and for the rude rock team. Um, but they, they have really taken a, uh, uh, tremendous uh you know they've really extended a great hand to us over the years and i I thank them for that um the fashion chronicles is also nsca ceu certified 1.2 credits for category c which is great uh really appreciate them helping as well it was a tremendous uh you know project for us myself jeremy aspa my business partner rob uh, Umfris, who's a true fascial expert um, all came together on this, so it's not just me and my talking points. Uh, they they provided some great elements to this. It's about ten or twelve hours of video content, um, and we'll be posting the link to that everywhere. In addition to that, I've got a, a pretty good uh, you know article archive on our site. I've written quite a bit for Simply Faster, so you know we've got quite a few things out there. A lot of free resources, and and please, for anybody out there that's listening, uh, I'm I'm always happy to talk shop, jump on a call, help wherever I can. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've learned so much from this field and so many people have been instrumental for my development. I think the absolute least I can do is, is pay it forward when I can.
1: That's awesome. Well, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for being on Danny. It was awesome talking to you today.
0: Really appreciate you, Joel. Thank you, sir.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another show. If you enjoyed it, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We definitely appreciate that, and we'll see you all next week.